0: Season's greetings and thank you for joining us for another episode of Celluloid Junkies. I'm Luke Kane and seated alongside me are Damian Heath. Hello. And Cameron Crothers. Hey. This month we are picking our feet in Poughkeepsie as we tip our hats to William Friedkin's explosive 1971 cops and robbers thriller, The French Connection. (laughs) Now, as always, we'll begin with the film's key inspirations, development, release, and reception. We'll air our interview with Thomas D. Claggett, acclaimed author of William Friedkin, Films of Aberration, Obsession, and Reality. Finally, in light of the holiday season, we are going to tell you how you can win your very own copy of The French Connection on Blu-ray, so stay with us. In 1970, director William Friedkin was dining with his then-girlfriend Kitty and her father, iconic Hollywood filmmaker Howard Hawks. Freakin's fourth film, The Boys in the Band, had just opened to lukewarm reviews and poor box office. Hawks told the younger filmmaker that if he wanted to stay employed, he'd need to tackle a more commercial project. Do an action picture, Hawks said. That's what people really want. Freakin later claimed that Hawks' advice had no bearing on his next project, an adaptation of Robin Moore's 1969 best-selling novel, The French Connection. The book tells the true story of New York City detectives Eddie Egan and Sonny Grosso, who in 1961 busted an international drug ring and seized 50 kilograms of heroin that had been smuggled into the city from France. A landmark victory over the burgeoning drug war, their effort began as a policeman's hunch and escalated into a four-month covert operation. Freakin was given the book by producer Phil Dantony, whom he played basketball with at the Paramount Gym. Freakin was preparing to direct Dirty Harry with Frank Sinatra, but the actor had to pull out, and with the project dead in the water, Freakin turned his attention to Moore's book. He read 12 pages and promptly fell asleep. At Dantony's urging, he met detectives Egan and Grosso, and an idea for the film began to take shape. Inspired by Costa Gavra's sprawling French political film Z, Freakin envisioned a violent, fast-paced thriller with European sensibilities that would blur the moral lines separating cop and criminal. The head of 20th Century Fox, Richard Zanuck, greenlit the film with a $1.8 million budget and one caveat. They would need to be in production within six weeks, because Zanuck knew he was about to be fired by his father Daryl. So like their two protagonists, Freakin' and Dantony suddenly found themselves in a race against the clock. They hired screenwriter Ernest Tidyman to adapt the novel. Freakin' later claimed that very little of Tidyman's dialogue was used in the film, as he encouraged his actors to ad-lib and draw from their experiences observing Egan and Grosso on patrol. Tidyman would win an Oscar for his screenplay, and continue to dispute Friedkin's claims until his death in 1984. Newcomer Roy Scheider was cast as Detective Grosso, the more reserved of the two detectives. Friedkin wanted Jackie Gleason for his volatile partner Egan, but Zanuck objected because of Gleason's involvement in Gene Kelly's disastrous experimental film Zhigo several years before. Steve McQueen considered and declined the role. With the production cut-off date drawing near, Freakin had no choice but to cast Gene Hackman after they met for what Freakin described as the dullest meeting I've ever had. Production kicked off in the winter of 1970 and shot for five weeks around the seedier parts of New York City. Freakin's uncompromising on-set antics rankled certain members of the cast and crew, particularly Hackman, who Freakin continually goaded to elicit an authentic performance. The film opened in limited release on the 9th of October 1971. To the surprise of the studio, it was an immediate hit with critics and audiences alike, grossing over $50 million worldwide. It was nominated for eight Oscars and took home five including Best Picture, Director and Actor for Gene Hackman. To this day the film continues to top Best Movie Lists and inspired a fictitious sequel in 1975. In 2005 it was selected by the National Film Registry for Preservation and in September of this year Freakin attended an honorary screening of the film at the Samuel Golden Theatre in California to commemorate its 45th anniversary. Perverse, brutal, and irreverent, The French Connection was one of a handful of films that pioneered the New Hollywood movement, and it continues to thrill and inspire audiences today.
1: That's interesting if it won best screenplay, but the screenplay was largely not used. I understand he he had this cinema Verite documentary style filmmaking and was constantly not rehearsing with the cast and the crew.
2: So the crew wouldn't even be aware a lot of the time of what was happening. And I guess there's a lot more to a screenplay than just the dialogue. He seems to have specified the fact that the dialogue wasn't used. That's true. I think Friedkin's one of those people that seems to believe his own legend a bit. Actually watching him interviewed is different than reading him interviewed. Like he's quiet, yeah, like a reverend and he's quiet. he's very dismissive of himself. Yeah. Friedkin's another director who probably benefited
1: from the American New Wave. Mm of the six, late 60s
0: early 70s. Well, it's interesting that he did French Connection which essentially s- was a prototype for how all modern cop procedural films have are shown. And then what was it 2 years after that he had The Exorcist. Yeah, yeah his
1: very which, next film. I mean,
0: you could make an argument
1: for I guess some of his later films but not on not on that best picture kind of level. This was the first time I'd watched The French Connection. What? Mm. It's, uh, it surprised me because I guess uh, not having watched it, I wasn't really paying too much attention when I read that it had won Best Picture. So I only really found that out properly this during the research for this podcast that it won Best Picture. It's such
2: a dark, ominous film to have won Best Picture. It's a film that could only have won Best Picture in the 70s.
3: Public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy... It is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. In 1971,
0: the same year that the French Connection was released, President Nixon declared war on drugs. It's a war that Freakin says America ultimately lost.
1: Drugs were coming in from Mexico, which borders the US, and the US was a big consumer of illicit substances. And so it worked, it was in that culture. And then there along came this American New Wave cinema, and filmmakers were able to tell these really gritty, dark kind of stories like the French Connection where the cops weren't always good with that subject matter and so it was like this perfect marriage at exactly the right time the war on drugs and drug films in particular are such good fodder for filmmakers and creative people of all types and I think in between the French Connection and Traffic and Sicario I'm sure there's other examples of it but there are a lot of individual stories about drug use.
0: What struck me about it, because I've seen films like Sicario, and with French Connection, you have two lead detectives, two mobsters, and three French guys. So there's seven principal guys in this operation. You know, I'm sure there's some mid- and low-level guys we're missing, but you get the feeling that it's small, that there are these key individuals and they're all playing their role. Now, when you watch something like Sicario or Traffic, it's just this vast network of criminal syndicates that are all interconnected and it does show that the problem has gotten so much bigger. And what's really stunning about the French Connection is that you have the feeling that they could actually, if they overturn this heroin, they could stop it. They could stop it in its tracks instead of what we have now, which is prevention control.
1: I read that uh, you'd pretty much have to stop it. If you stop 20% of uh, the drugs that are coming into the US and they're they're coming in so quickly, so fast, and from so many different angles, uh, you're not stopping anything. You're just driving up essentially the profit of the cartels because you're making the street price of the drug higher. So... To have any kind of impact on their profits, it's been said that you need to stop 75% of the drugs coming into the US,
2: which is a point they're never, ever going to get to. Mm. I think over time in films, as we've got to learn more and more about the drug trade, we've got to see films that attack drug use from a personal level and not see drug users as the other. In French Connection, they are still kind of seen as the other. It's it's pretty early on in that hard drug kind of era. The film's been uh, targeted for racism on some levels, and well, I'm sure we'll get into that. But for the most part, it's just it's portrayed as African-Americans in a bar.
0: Unknowable people, they're just junkies, they're low-lifes. And that's actually explored further in French Connection too.
2: When, yeah, and when we get further and further along in terms of cinema, you've got films like Requiem for a Dream, where you get a, you know, middle-class boy becoming... Completely slave to heroin. You've got films like Trainspotting Spotting um, in the early 90s or early to mid 90s where you understood the socioeconomic impact of having no money and how you would be drawn to that. In traffic, you actually get to see the effect on a family, um, and that only comes from knowledge and stories and all of this information being accumulated over time as we learn more and more about it.
0: Yeah, well, look, I think if Hollywood's become anything, it's become more, I guess, empathic. And it's good that we finally got human faces on addicts.
1: The social change that has occurred over time is from the time of French Connection, where it's uh, get drugs off the street by prosecuting the people that are using it, to yeah. today where it is more about there's an impact on people individually and families, and you have to you do have to be empathetic about that, and therefore from that comes rehabilitation and. Drug programs and all of that kind of stuff But the
2: French Connection is dealing with the very start of this issue yeah. Which is why it's so interesting Like as you see it and you go These guys don't even know what they're on the cusp of At this time
1: the cops don't realise that Hey by actually making this bust We're going to make things worse Because that's going to give more money essentially to the cartels Because their next batch is
0: going to come in at triple the price But what do you do? Do you not fight the problem or do you fight the problem? Yeah
3: I Popeye's here Put your hands on your heads. Get off the bar and get on the
2: wall. They might be uh not great cops because of some of the stuff that they do, but they're great cops in terms of like they do want to do the right thing and get to that end goal of sort of you know getting the bus that they want. I think they just play off each other because yeah, like a Doyle can be a complete asshole, um, and it's it's just that good cop bad cop kind of thing.
0: What interested me is that they don't seem to be playing at it. It just seems to be naturally happening. Yeah. Hackman seems naturally volatile and like, you know, a bit of a loose cannon. Even though that was apparently really hard for him to get into that character. In the film's opening, when we get Gene Hackman in the Santa suit and they follow that guy and they bash him up. They did that scene. They shot that scene first. And Hackman couldn't build the necessary uh, anger and, and, and violence that Friedkin wanted. So he had to leave it. And then they shot the whole movie and came back to it at the end they got it in one take
1: so that scene's the one with picking your feet in Poughkeepsie mm.
3: hey shithead when's the last time you picked your feet huh? what's he talking about i got a man in Poughkeepsie who wants to talk to you you ever been in Poughkeepsie huh have you ever been to Poughkeepsie? Hey man, come on, give me a break. about I to Hear you say it. Come
0: on. It was a real tactic that Egan used. What he would do is say an irrational question that the uh, suspect couldn't possibly answer, like picking your feet in Poughkeepsie, and that would disorient them. And then when they heard a question that they knew the answer to, it would be an impulse for them to to, to answer it because it's something they can answer and they know about.
1: Doyle is asking. I'll get you for picking your feet in Poughkeepsie and then Russo will ask a question that will get him an answer. Mm. And so that's classic good cop, bad cop. And I think they set that up really well at the start of the movie with that scene. But they also set up this dominant-submissive kind of relationship and Doyle, being the lead character, is dominant but he's dominant in the way an idiot is dominant a lot of the time and that's because he does stuff without thinking and he says stuff without thinking one of my favourite lines in the movie is where Doyle is asking for the support of his boss and his boss turns to Russo and says do you believe this and he just says I go with my partner I think it's a fantastic line, and that says all you need to know about that relationship, really. I go with my partner.
2: And he doesn't know if it's right, but he still goes Yeah, well. He doesn't
1: ask. I think by saying I go with my partner, he says, oh, there's a good chance this could be wrong.
0: And Hackman um, obviously met Egan, and Shida met Grosso, the characters they're based on. And Hackman and Egan apparently got along quite well, but Hackman was a bit appalled by him. And he asked Grosso once, "Why? why do you like him? And Grossi said, well, if I didn't like him, who would?
3: (laughs) Gene is very liberal. Uh, He he didn't uh, uh, really take well to using the N-word and beating up suspects and all that, which was the truth about that cop. And Gene didn't want to go there. So he and I had a constant tug of war where I had to get him angry. And he's angry throughout that picture. I think the
0: most interesting accomplishment of this film is how it manages to keep us in Doyle's corner without making him sympathetic. He's a racist, he's a drunk. Um, Pauline Kael called him a sadist in her review. He's never off duty. It's hard to know how much of it is an act and how much of it is the man. He spends more times at bars than he does at his house, which is understandable given that he lives in a squalid one-bedroom apartment that looks like a prison, and I don't think that's a mistake. Um, He has no meaningful ties or connections to the world beyond his job. He's a man with good impulses, that's why he became a cop, but for him life is merely competitive and violent and unsentimental.
2: The film is touted as being racist at times, but because you've got a racist character doesn't make a film racist, that's ridiculous. So I don't think his racism is racism in its purest form. I, I think it comes from a place of ignorance rather than hatred. I think that's the, that's the difference. And I think you kind of forgive him for that because you were just wanting him to win.
0: I mean, the first, very first time we see him, he's making little black kids laugh with his Santa thing. Then he's beating up a black guy. Then we see him back at the police station and he uses the N-word, which, you know, watching the film today, you, you notice that.
1: Movies are a document of the times. So a movie made in 1971 about cops in Brooklyn is going to have black people. It's going to have racism. And it doesn't mean the film... Like you said, it doesn't mean the film is racist.
0: The film itself,
1: the filmmaker. That's right. It yeah. just means this is a document of what was happening on the streets. And I think it's important to continue to do that no matter what.
0: But do you think Popeye Doyle, the character, is racist?
1: Um, I don't get the impression that he's overly racist. I get the impression that he probably hates a lot of people. And just that's probably just based on people because he's so
2: driven about his job. In the same scene, sorry, he says... When he he says "nigger," he also says "guinea," which is the same equivalent of calling an Irish. But like, it's the same thing. And he calls the French frogs. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of racism towards.
0: But that's different because I think you know the obviously Americans' uh, relationship with French people didn't involve lynchings and slavery. So I mean, you're going to have a more sensitivity about that word. I think he's racist. I I think you would have to say he is. And I think it's never clearer than when he walks into the bar. Those people had nothing to do with the main thread of the story. That was put into the film because Egan used to do that.
1: And in the times, at this time, of French Connection, a lot of bars that were predominantly black would have been raided by police because they were black bars. It's inherent racism within the entire police department, within everybody who is in a position of power, politics and media and all of this kind of stuff at the time.
0: Kind of institutionalised bigotry that's learned. Like when you become a cop, you might not be racist, but then when you start to see the rigours of it and hear all the other cops talk, suddenly those words are coming out of your mouth.
1: And It's not justified in any way, but it's a bigger problem than changing one person's
2: opinion. The chase sequence in French Connection has gone down as one of the greatest chase sequences ever put on film. Bullet being another notable one, which is also another fantastic film. And D'Antony produced Bullet,
0: who was the producer of this film.
2: There's that thing in filmmaking of knowing the space and the characters that inhabit the space and orientation. This is so expertly cut in terms of editing. Like, it is to a razor's edge, but you never don't know where you are. Friedkin had seen the dailies of the cut that they'd put together, and it just looked lame. So then they went back and res- rescheduled a shooting day that was meant for something else. They mounted three, two cameras, one on the hood, one on the passenger side. Friedkin was in the back, over the shoulder shot, and the guy just drove at 90 miles an hour down 26 blocks in Brooklyn. The pace, the frenetic nature of it, the realism, it's just something we haven't seen before, and we probably won't see again because freaking away like, actually says he goes i would never do that again i was a young kid i was stupid i just put the i was putting people's lives in danger uh, i heard freaking say that this uh, a lot of what this scene was
1: based on was the f scott fitzgerald quote action is character uh, which means that what a person does and how they do it is essentially who they are and that this scene embodies
0: popeye It does, because it's just that dogged, almost rabid conviction to get somewhere and pursue something at any expense. I think um, what's interesting about the chase is that, in Freakin's words, it's totally arbitrary to the story, and yet it feels like we couldn't live without it.
1: I mean, there's so much going on in this chase because there's so much going on on the train. And
0: that's what, for me, makes the scene work, is that those two murders are committed, and every time a murder is committed you are more and more desperate for Hackman to get there it, it tricks you into believing that only Hackman can stop this, if he doesn't get there everyone's going to die, yeah. and I think as you were saying before, Freakin really wanted that big city energy, and for him the elevated train was probably the best symbol of that kind of just, you know, majesty and energy of, of, of living in an urban environment. It's interesting as well that Roisman said he undercranked the camera to 18 frames a second so that everything moved faster and that's a technique that I, I I remember seeing in Mad Max in the opening scenes of Fury Road. You can tell that that's undercranked a little bit. But it was filmed in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, and apparently William Freakin used the song Black Magic Woman to help him with the editing yeah, flow of it, did, and uh, then removed it.
3: De Freakin calls
0: his style induced documentary it's like a self-coined phrase for for what he does and i just wanted to talk about that style and how it elevates the film about others in the genre the reason that i think it's kind of funny that he coined that himself is because uh essentially the induced documentary style is a a big part of french new wave and italian neorealism and i mean if you watch Jules and jim or bicycle thieves the way that those stories are told the energy of them and also not only that but like the the politics of them It's very similar. I I would question whether or not Friedkin can claim that he invented a style with this film.
1: The historical dictionary of crime films states that Induced Documentary was uh, where Friedkin... Quote, tried to engender a feeling of spontaneity and reality by rehearsing the actors and camera crew separately to simulate a sense of improvisation. I guess a part of it is, I guess the difference between something like Jules and Jim and French Connection is realism, because Jules and Jim to me doesn't have a lot of realism. It has a lot of idealism.
0: That's true, but it does have the snappy, economical editing. It does have voiceover that marries together a whole bunch of discordant scenes and it tells a big story with just a singular narration and it has an ambiguity and a sense of amorality that French Connection has. He cited Jules and Jim as an inspiration. This variegates so much from what actually happened that I think it's probably ethical to kind of not advertise it's based on true story
2: i think i saw friedkin interview like when he was interviewed about it he goes i don't know why they made us change the names he said like 20th century fox lawyers who were just really got really scared about it but we'd already had 100 percent of the rights to the story so i don't understand why we're changing them and he said it was just a stupid decision
0: and grosso and egan sort of loved notoriety and they essentially had careers in entertainment both of them This was the first film that kind of opened their eyes to it and, of course, both appear in the film. And to Freakin's credit, he was the first one to marry Mm. the police procedural with this style of filmmaking
2: and it is a beautiful marriage. It's so interesting, the directors that start out in documentaries and how that translates to fiction films. Freakin's restraint is actually a lot better than his antics might imply.
3: What drew me to this and everything else I've done are the characters first. Who they are. Who is the person behind that mask of a face. Who are these people. How do they move. What do they say. I mean exactly what do they say. And what are they all about. And when I met Egan and Grasso. I realized that Egan was all about obsession. And that's how this case was made. By an obsessed cop who didn't give a damn about anything that got in his way.
0: Well, you know, Friedkin, when he started on this project, his ambition was to, after meeting Egan and Grosso, was to show the moral ambiguity and and that the line between cop and criminal is a tenuous one and that in, in many ways they are the same. We see the cops and we, we have glimpses of the cops and we have glimpses of the mobsters and they're all very ambitious They're all very driven. They're all very professionally minded. They all have very, very good street instincts. They know what they're looking for. They're observing things around them. They both have their eye on a prize and due process and the law gets in the way most of the time, like most of the time it gets in the way for Popeye and for Cloudy as well. They just want to get in there and do it. They don't want to wait for the warrant. But they're very different as well and the differences are interesting because Popeye and Cloudy are, are very much working class. You know, they're blue collar, they look very disheveled, they drive bombs, they eat pizza from street vendors, they wouldn't look out of place in any sad corner bar really. Whereas the mobsters are dressed in tailored suits and they eat at fancy restaurants and there's an elegance and a gracefulness to how they speak. Uh, they're crawling with beautiful women, they have beachfront houses, and we see their relationships with their families, and they appear to be very loving and very warm. I mean, all we see of Popeye is that he gets drunk at a bar until he passes out. He, We see him at one point perving on a woman who's got knee-high boots, and then the next scene she's locked chained him to the bed, and that's just another one-night stand. Do you know, apparently Egan used to see women that he liked, he would hassle them, arrest them, and then take them to bed, and then they'd go in the morning.
1: Sounds like a real stand-up guy. The war on drugs has been an ongoing battle by the United States at a federal level since 1971 to combat the proliferation of narcotics into the country. Heroin and cocaine were both unregulated in the United States until the Harrison Act of 1914, which criminalised both. In 1919, the government put a constitutional ban on the production, importation and sale of alcohol, known as Prohibition. It was repealed in 1933 and remains the only constitutional amendment to later be overturned. In 1937, the film Reefer Madness set about a chain of events that eventually led to the criminalisation of marijuana possession, and in both 1951 and 1956, the government increased mandatory sentence terms for narcotics offences. With the beginning of the sexual revolution in the 1960s and the opposition to the Vietnam War, youth counterculture popularised the use of hallucinatory drugs and their availability was widespread throughout the United States. Much of this was supplied from within the country, but much of it was also obtained from south of the border, from Mexico and further afield. Returning Vietnam veterans were addicted to heroin at a rate of 10-15%. to 15%. In 1971, then-President Richard Nixon declared war on drugs, introducing the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act. In 1973, he created the Drug Enforcement Administration, what we know acronymically as the DEA. New York State followed in Nixon's footsteps that same year with the Rockefeller Drug Laws, which required mandatory 15-year jail sentences for any drug offence, even first-time non-violent offences. When Ronald Reagan became president after 1980, the war on drugs escalated. In just 20 years, the number of people incarcerated for non-violent drug offences blew out from 50,000 to over 500,000. This rising level of incarceration occurred during the multi-term presidencies of Reagan and Bill Clinton, as well as during George H.W. Bush's single term. From 1989 through today, the U.S. spent billions of dollars on attempting to slow the production of drugs in countries south of its border, including Mexico, Panama, Nicaragua, Colombia, Honduras and others. The combination of increased spending and increased incarceration should have seen a marked decrease in drug use, but to continue to combat the so-called war, it became apparent that yet more spending needed to occur. The social tide started to shift, and the people began rejecting the idea of the war on drugs. Laws regarding the criminalization of marijuana, in particular, were repealed or lessened. States began enacting legislation that, while it didn't reverse the number of people incarcerated, slowed its growth and slowed the growing reach of the DEA on everyday lives, even despite support for the war on drugs from both George W. Bush and Barack Obama. It should be noted, however, that Obama did sign the Fair Sentencing Act into law in 2010, which decreased disparities between trafficking of different types of drugs. The Global Commission on Drug Policy, a panel of world leaders and intellectuals based in Switzerland, wrote a report in 2011 that declared, The war on drugs has failed. Social reforms and 30 years of research dictate that governments focus more money and assets towards drug rehabilitation these days rather than incarceration. From 1980 to 2000, the number of Americans in jail rose from 0.2% to 0.7% of the population. In the last 16 years, it has only grown one-tenth of a percentage point more. Opponents of the war on drugs state that the increased incarceration levels have led to less opportunities for education and employment for drug users, creating a permanent underclass of citizens. Economist Geoffrey Morone stated in 2008, that the decriminalisation of drugs would unburden the economy to the tune of $41.3 billion annually and bring in a further $46.7 billion in annual tax revenue.
0: To help us celebrate the French connection, award-winning author Thomas Claggett sat down with us. Tom received his degree in journalism at the University of Southern California in 1978 and took his first job running copy machines for Mary Tyler Moore Productions. He spent the greater part of 20 years as an assistant editor in Hollywood, working on a range of projects, including the cult series St. Elsewhere and Jack Nicholson's The Two Jakes in 1990. The same year he published his first book, William Friedkin, Films of Aberration, Obsession and Reality, to great acclaim. So much so that a second edition was published in 2003, with additional chapters covering Friedkin's subsequent work. In recent years, Thomas turned his talents to historical fiction, publishing two novels, The Pursuit of Murrieta in 2014, and West of Penance in May of last year, which won the New Mexico-Arizona Book Award for Best Historical Fiction. Of his book on Friedkin, critic Walter Chaw wrote for Film Freak Central, It is the most meticulous analysis of Friedkin's body of work to date.
4: I was running the copy machines at Mary Tyler Moore Productions. I was able to get in and pitch my idea about a book to Billy Friedkin through the kind auspices of one of the people who was working at MTM at that time, who knew Billy. I went over to his offices at Warner Brothers. He asked me, okay, what is it you want to know? I understand from my friend that you have a book idea. So I told him I was interested in writing a book about his films, not only an examination of the films themselves, but also an in-depth look at the making of them. And first he said to me, I have no interest in participating in the writing of a book that isn't honest. So I want I want you to tell me what you think of my films. So I listed each one individually and told him what I thought. There were some that I liked a lot. There were some that I thought weren't very good. And I told him why I thought so. And I also uh, told him about the films, which included the documentaries, which I had not seen. And he sat there and he looked at me for a few moments after that. And he said, that all sounds fair. And that was it. He said, let's go.
0: I don't know if I would have had the courage to have been that honest with him, although my impressions of Freak in in interviews are that he is very straight up. So I I think that was probably a good impulse to sort of just be completely frank.
4: You are right. That is one of the things that has always struck me about him. He is very honest and straightforward about, you know, things he says he wants to do, will do, has done. For the films that he's made that have been failures, he says... It was my fault. I'm the one who made the movie. It either succeeds or it fails, and I'm the one responsible. And he has said that more than once, about more than one film.
0: He seems to have had a lot of strained relationships with some of his collaborators. I was wondering if some ill will that existed made it difficult for you to get any any interviews.
4: That's funny. I had about 40 or 50 people agree to talk to me. And I probably had... 25 or 30 say, no, they would prefer not to speak.
0: Were there any in Uh, particular that you were especially disappointed not to get?
4: They were all disappointments not to get (laughs) because, you know, the more people that you speak to, the more insight there is to more than likely be gained. Even when it becomes a case of the same stories become, could become repetitious but I discovered that there was always something to be gained and to be gleaned from every single person that I did speak to. For example, I was anxious to speak with Ernest Tidyman, who was the scriptwriter for The French Connection. And sadly, I received a letter back from him saying that he had nothing to say about Billy Frieden or The French Connection. And that was it.
0: I'm guessing that was after Friedkin made those comments about whether or not Tidyman necessarily uh, his script was used, that it was mostly ad-libbed. I understand he got a bit upset about that. I suspect that he may have, but not having the opportunity to speak with him directly, I couldn't say for sure. Did you speak with Owen Roysman?
4: Yes, I did. Uh, Owen Roysman was terrific. A real gentleman. He was the director of photography on the French Connection, and then he shot The Exorcist. He was very forthcoming about working with Friedkin, about what Billy wanted, what he expected. Almost everyone I spoke with, including Owen Reusman, said there were times when it was difficult to work with Billy, but that's not out of the ordinary on just about every film. For example, Friedkin uh, on French Connection wanted to use as much natural lighting indoors and outdoors as possible because he likes that. He feels that there's more realism to be gained from that. And there are times when, or a director of photography, I should say, believes that he needs to use some lights. And Friedkin has many times said, no, absolutely not. Because he wants it to look the way he wants it to look. But overall, Owen's discussions and stories uh, about working on the French Connection and The Exorcist were uh, all very positive. There were several reasons that I wanted to do a book on the films of William Friedkin. One was that I had been thinking about it for some years, probably ever since I saw The Exorcist, which I saw actually uh, shortly after Christmas in 1973. It opened here in the U.S. on Christmas Day. <laughs> and, uh, right. <laughs> I was so, the film was, was so incredible. And I took a keen interest in everything he did after that. So I'd been thinking that, you know, something about him would be would be wonderful to do. The years passed. And I felt that way even more strongly as I saw that no book about Friedkin's films had ever been done. Films about, uh, books on the films of uh, David Lean, Sam Peckinpah, John Ford, Orson Welles, etc. I mean, you could almost name off the, all the film directors uh, who were well known, uh, had at least one, if not more than one book about them, so I decided why not let's do one on freaking this is Uncharted territory
0: well, I think your your book is kind of uh, the general consensus is that it's negated the need for uh, any a- any additional book to be written because it's so comprehensive <laughs> Oh well thank you I was interested in in the title of the book because you you particularly mention aberration, obsession, and reality yes. And I could see all of those things very, very clearly in French Connection. I suppose the one that interests me the most, and it might just be because of the current landscape of cinema, but there seem to be so many depraved moments in the film for me. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, when Gene Hackman is walking at the beginning of the chase scene and, you know, the sniper's going for him. And rather than just hitting, you know, a man or someone, we very consciously are aware that he's hit a young mother And that the baby is left screaming in this pram. And then later, as he's inching along the wall, just a few minutes later, we see these two little kids smiling at him.
4: Billy Friedkin was setting trends. He was going places that filmmakers had been before, cop movies and horror movies. But he did something very different with The French Connection than had been seen before. Here he has a story which was based on fact. That was one of the things that I know appealed to him very much. And he was turning things upside down and showing audiences something that the majority of them had never seen before. He has cops and criminals who are both uh, depraved in their own ways. Popeye Doyle, played by Gene Hackman. He is this slovenly dressed racist cop He's bullying and brutish and violent, yet he is as driven a character as we had probably seen, maybe since John Wayne is Ethan Edwards in The Searchers. Nothing gets in his way. He is after this criminal. He eats, sleeps, and breathes his job, while the criminal, who is a character named Charnier, who Hackman's character calls Frog One, is this very suave, very elegant Frenchman. He dresses impeccably. He is a very wealthy man. He has this young woman for a wife. But it turns out that he is a drug dealer. He is the one actually selling the drugs worldwide. I say in my book, he's, you know, this facade on the outside covers the fact that he is filled with cockroaches because of the business that he's in. It matters to him not that people will die or lose livelihoods because they are taking the drugs that he has to sell. It matters not to him. What he sees is the money.
0: That's never more clear than it's just a tiny moment in the film but where Hackman is watching him through the window of a restaurant and we see him in, you know, the criminal impeccably dressed the banquet of food, and Gene Hackman's on the other side of the street, and he looks like, you know, almost like a vagrant, and he's standing out there, and his, his feet are freezing. An initial, you know, a superficial examination, you would probably be more cautious of the guy in the street than you would the man in the restaurant, but the man in the restaurant is the one you've got to be worried about.
4: You're absolutely right. Hackman is standing there, and he, you see him pour out this uh, cup of coffee. He has that disgusted look on his face, <laughs> and the coffee, it looks like it's crankcase oil. at this point. That scene was not in the screenplay. That was a scene that came up because Friedkin was doing his research for this film, he went around with the police detectives who actually worked the French Connection case. They were uh, New York City detectives Eddie Egan, Sonny Grasso, and Randy Jergensen. Jergensen tells the story that he and Egan and Grasso and Friedkin were all sitting in this diner having hamburgers. And Friedkin said to them, is this how you guys eat all the time? And they told him, this isn't just how we eat, this is how we live. You should see the guys that we're after. You should see how they live and how they eat. And that's how that scene came about.
0: Do you think there is validity to um, Friedkin's claim that the screenplay really was more of a guide?
4: That is one way of looking at it. What I was told, not only by Friedkin, but others who worked on the film. Phil D'Antoni, the producer, wanted to make a movie about the French Connection bust. There was a book, a nonfiction book out, written by Robin Moore called The French Connection. D'Antoni gave Friedkin a copy of the book and said, I think this would make a great film. Friedkin says he went home that night, he read eight pages, fell asleep, went in the next morning to D'Antoni and said, let's make this movie. The book was a police procedural. You know, it's, it's kind of on the dry side. And so what they did was they hired Ernest Tidyman to write the screenplay. This is what I was told. He had been a New York Times reporter, and he had just written a book, a novel called Shaft, which would soon be made into a picture, a film starring Richard Roundtree. Tidyman wrote his screenplay and he pretty much apparently used Robin Moore's book as his guideline and as one of the people who worked on the French Connection film, uh, his name was Thomas Rand and he was known as Fat Thomas because he weighed well over 300-350 pounds. He was the location manager. And he told me, Tidyman's script wasn't cooking at all. Those were his words. Freakin', I believe, from everything I gathered, felt much the same way. He wanted something that was a very visceral and fast-paced kind of story, because that's what he was wanting to tell. All these movies he'd made before, Good Times, uh, The night they Rated Minsky's, The Birthday Party, Boys in the Band. These were all films that were almost stage-bound. But when you look at The People versus Paul Crump, you see the roots of the French connection right there, at least as far as Friedkin's abilities and what he wants to do and what he is capable of doing. Friedkin then went around with Eddie Egan and Randy Jurgensen and Sonny Grasso, gleaming these stories from them. And as he would hear these stories, those were the things that became integrated into the French connection. What I told you about Hackman's character being this deplorable guy, this racist guy, this is how Eddie Egan spoke. That's how Eddie Egan was, and Hackman didn't want to do that. It was a real battle for the first few weeks to get Hackman to do that kind of character, to find that core and to deliver that performance. Friedkin wanted this thing to be this very, as I said, fast-paced, visceral kind of picture and so
0: they took these stories about how these policemen lived. What I found so compelling about Popeye, he has good impulses, and I'm sure that's what ultimately led him to become a cop. He wants to clean up the streets. He's doing it for all the right reasons. His methods, uh, they're questionable. They're morally questionable, how he gets there. And I love that I the audience it. is, yeah, yeah. And I love how the audience is asked to accept that this man is both things.
4: Right, well, I think, I think the thing that comes through as well and the reason that audiences were on his side and cheering him, really, mm. is because the filmmakers show that Doyle, for all his faults, is a driven man to do the right thing, but he's an underdog. He's almost, he, he has taken off the case a little over halfway through the film. Because his immediate lieutenant, the character is named Simonson, and that, by the way, is Eddie Egan. Popeye is taken off the case because, basically because uh, he's become too close. He is so rabid about finding and, and catching uh, Frog 1 that his, uh, his lieutenant believes that he's lost, he's lost sight. He's gotten too close to what's going on. And it's right after that, after he's taken off the case, that Frog One tells his, uh, his associate, Frog Two, who's basically a hitman, to go ahead and get rid of this tiresome New York City detective who's just in our way. has been chasing uh, you know Frog 2 and he finally catches up to him and he's as you say he's at the bottom of the stairs Frog 2 is running up the stairs and Hackman has drawn his gun he's leveled it there and he shouts halt and Frog 2 keeps going Hackman shoots him in the back And Frog 2 holds there for a moment and then falls down and rolls back down the stairs. Randy Jurgensen said he saw the the scene as Friedkin shot it, and he says, I begged Billy, please, don't do this. And Friedkin said, why? What's wrong? And he says, you have a New York City detective shooting an unarmed man in the back. He says, that's not right. That is not what we do. We are police officers, and Friedkin said he said Friedkin said to him, "Don't worry about it." Randy said he spent the next three days trying to convince Friedkin. He says, "Please let there be a second gun. Let let Frog Frog Two reach down to his ankle or inside his belt and pull out a second gun. You know, something. Let him try to attack Popeye Doyle. Just something." And he said Friedkin kept saying to him, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. Opening day of French Connection, October 9th, 1971. He, uh, Friedkin and Randy are at the uh, first evening show in New York City of the film. And they're standing in the back of the theater. He says, it's a packed house, a thousand people. And that scene comes up in New York City, they're watching this, Hackman shoots him in the back, he falls down the stairs, and he says, "The entire theater erupted into applause. People stood up and clapped." Randy said to me, "He says at that moment, I knew I was an advisor, and Friedkin was the filmmaker. You know, he knew. He Billy knew what would work. Yeah. And it, and, and until until Randy told me that story." I had never even considered what he said about, you know, a New York City police detective shoots an unarmed suspect in the back. It never even occurred to me that there was a problem.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I suppose in part it's because during that whole chase, he's been so vile that you're just so ready to see him be dispatched. And Hackman
4: knew that this was the guy who had just tried to uh, execute him.
0: Yeah. And I almost loved how offended he, he... I mean, he's so offended by that, uh, which, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a silly word, right. but, but the, the lengths he goes to, the, the way he pushes himself to keep on his tail and to get him, um, something about that is very empowering. And, and you're right, I, I never thought of that, but he is unarmed when he takes that shot. Right, I
4: know, but, but you are right about how, how, uh, how, how despicable... Frog 2 has been up to that point. Mm. You want him dead. <laughs> uh, he thinks, you know, he thinks nothing of killing people uh just so he can get away. Others' lives are meaningless to him. And this I think also goes to the power
0: of the French Connection and the power of film overall. Absolutely, and I love that Freakin had the confidence to know that. He didn't need to sort of let the audience off the hook by having that guy produce a second gun. And, you know, it's
3: to make... Excellent way of putting it. The victim was in about 10 pieces. He's a bad dude. He's a scumbag. You made me do that. Where are you? Things happening to me, you know. A controversial and landmark film. Why don't you want me anymore? What I'm doing affected me about a new york subculture being terrorized by one of its own it's just stuff going down you know what you have to do
0: i just tom i wanted to ask you um about cruising because a lot of the uh when i was researching uh, the film and particularly you and your book Uh, I read a lot of people say that your chapter on cruising helped them to understand the film. They credit you with that, um, that you actually enhanced their enjoyment
4: of it. I'm glad to know that. Thank
0: you. I was wondering how Friedkin, um, well, well, how he got involved with that project and and how he felt in particular about the the backlash that film got.
4: He got involved with it after reading a book, a very short novel, uh, called Cruising. It was written, I believe, by a New York uh, newspaper man, New York reporter. It was based on a real series of murders committed in New York City over, I don't know, nine months, a year and a half, something like that. Two men were accosting gay men. They claimed to be police officers, I believe. Uh, They took these gay men and made them draw out their savings, all their money, they would then murder these uh, victims and cut up their bodies and drop drop off the pieces around town. It turned out that Randy Jurgensen, who I'd mentioned before, was the actual New York City detective who was told that he would be going undercover into the gay leather community those were the uh, gay men who were being accosted by these by these two guys. Uh, he would go into that community and be undercover, and you know, live and act as a homosexual man as a way to try to find these two guys. You know, he did eventually see these two men from everything he had been told by uh, people he spoke with. Uh, about these murders and all. One day, he he told me, he says, one day, I saw these two guys and I just knew that they were the ones. Well, Friedkin had read the book and it was after uh, he made the film The Brinks Job that Randy Jerkinson also uh, was an actor in for Friedkin. Uh, that Friedkin said to Randy on a plane ride, I guess they were going back to New York, Randy said to him, you know, what What are you thinking of doing? And Friedkin said, well, I'm thinking about uh, doing a, uh, a movie on cruising, the story of cruising. And Randy said, I looked at Billy and I said, you know, that was me. I was that cop. So, Friedkin then immediately, you know, starts talking to Randy, getting the story, getting the actual story, you know, from the source. Freakin then wrote the screenplay himself, and of course he would also uh, he would also direct it. That's how it came about. When he starts shooting the film, they made changes in the screenplay, as typically happens. In the case of Cruising, there were members of the New York City gay community who objected to this movie. They felt that it was going to paint gays in such an awful way that gay men would have targets on their backs or on their fronts. They demanded changes to the screenplay. I was told by several people Al Pacino wouldn't come out of his trailer on some days because, you know, the people out there with the uh, the signs and the chants protesting this, he, he felt it was just, this was awful. They said he was afraid to come out. You know, when they would go out and they would shoot scenes, you know, a lot of the people would be yelling and screaming and, and shooting off fireworks and uh, uh, bullhorns. When they took the film in, they had to loop, you know, something like 80% of the dialogue. So it was, it was a real nightmare. You know, people, people wondered, you know, why, why did Friedkin want to make this movie? I was told on the dubbing stage, uh, they were, I guess, you know, a little over halfway through the dub. And Friedkin even said, why did I make this movie? I'll let you decide how, how you want to interpret that. Uh, but I know Billy always wants to make a movie... That's about something, something that maybe people aren't aware of. Maybe people don't know about. And he wants to take you there and show you something that is
0: different. I'd heard a lot about cruising, mostly about people's objections to it. And uh, as a gay man, I, I sort of, I guess I came to it with a um, certain degree of apprehension. uh uh-huh. But I I thought, I mean, I really enjoyed the film. You can see that there are problems with it, particularly the last half of it. Yes. But certainly I, I found nothing about it that was homophobic. I actually thought that it was um, really quite a sensitive film. And I thought that um, the neighbor that Pacino befriends and his death at the end, which I guess works as the emotional crux of the film, I thought that the neighbor was a dimensional, drawn out, gay character. I thought it was a really interesting film and um and, and 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 certainly there was no nothing about it that I found um offensive.
4: Right. I would agree with you about that. The film doesn't deal with any stereotypes. No. And he knew exactly what he was going into because he had done the research on that particular gay leather subculture as I understood it. So he knew what he was going into, but he avoided any stereotypes. And I thought, too, that he wasn't making any of these men apt to be evil or subversive. He was simply showing you what was there. And in that way, he wasn't doing anything differently than he had done in The French Connection.
0: It's a very particular... Area, you know, it's an area that not many people know about subculture, I should say, that not many people know about. Um, and, and and you're absolutely right. And he does take you into that world. And I um, I mean, I did I knew very little about it, and it was I, I thought it was very interesting. The French Connection has such a, a big reputation, and I I had, when I went into it, I thought, oh, you know, perhaps this will be just sort of like a nutritious movie. Um, <laughs> You know, one of those films, yes, it's very good. It's a film. It's Schindler's List. But I was I was totally wrong. It could not have been more exciting. There couldn't have been more dessert in it. Look, your daughter
3: doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind.
0: I have to ask you about the, um... Because you... In the second edition, um of the book, you go into detail about the, the re-release of The Exorcist in 2000. Yes. Which, you know, reintegrates 11 minutes of material that Friedkin had originally cut from the film. I wanted to know uh, how that came about and and what the response has been.
4: William Peter Blatty, the uh, producer and writer of the film, and also he's the author of the novel, the 11 minutes, those scenes that he wanted back into the picture. When they did the original cut of the film, it ran about two hours and 11 minutes. Friedkin was of the mind that you can't let a movie run longer than two hours. People will start getting antsy. So he made those cuts because at that time, the director was allowed to have the say so. Well, William Peter Blatty told me that he you know, had always wanted those minutes back, and had been talking to Billy off and on for the next almost 30 years to get that footage put back in. And Freakin was always resisting. Then other films started coming out, mostly in theaters, you know, director's cuts, and I think Billy said that Blatty finally wore him down. And he said, all right, let's go back in and take a look. So they went back into the editing room, they got a hold of the footage, and added it back in. The film, uh, it made made headlines when it was re-released as the version you've never seen and got a mostly positive response. I took a look at it. You know, my feeling was that, first of all, let me say, I think The Exorcist is one of the best films that's ever been made. I thought it was virtually perfect the way it was. I guess perhaps I went in with some reservations about what was going to be in it because I'd heard about almost everything that was going to be added prior to actually seeing it. So when I watched it, I I tried to see it through as fresh a pair of eyes as I could. I thought that a lot of it sort of hurt the film, that it wasn't really necessary. They added in, for example, faces. They superimposed faces of the demon that we'd seen before in Father Karras' dream sequence. These, These were added in as, for example, Ellen Burstyn comes into her daughter's room. Suddenly you get this thing quickly dissolving in, you know, sort of in the background behind her this face, uh, and then it's gone. I thought that moments like that did not help the picture. It almost, to me, seemed as though it was a way of saying, okay, look out, something maybe is about to happen. And I thought it wasn't necessary. But I also spoke to people who had never seen The Exorcist before, most of them not having been born at that point, uh, and they were seeing it for the very first time. You know, it worked for them. They understood it and it was effective. There was another scene, a very famous one, which is the, uh, what they, what's called the spider walk backwards down the staircase. It shows the uh, Linda Blair character, Reagan, and she walks on her hands and feet backwards down the staircase of her mother's townhouse. And then the film does a very fast fade to black. Then it goes on to something else. And, and I thought to myself, don't we need to see what's done here? I mean, you know, Reagan, the possessed Reagan is loose. She's not tied to her bed and she's coming backwards like this down the staircase. I remember I saw it with a friend of mine and I asked him about it and he said, I said, what would you have done? And he said, if my kid was doing that, I'd have him in the, in the hospital. Yes. Right away, I certainly wouldn't keep him at home anymore. You know, when that moment happens in the film, just about the halfway point, and you see this happen, and it's so shocking. Suddenly, the film needs to go in a different direction than it is, because it's more, I mean, much more of a physical manifestation now. We've seen her levitate off the bed, but now she's actually physically loose in the house, and I thought, it's it's too much. And that was
0: the original reason that Friedkin took the scene out in the first place. I'm always a bit put off by the spider walk. I think one of the reasons is I can tell it's not Linda Blair. Right. It begs the question, well, what happens immediately after? I mean, did she just stand up and go, okay, I'm going to bed now? And then, <laughs> you know, like it's odd. And, and you're right, it is. it almost feels like too much of a too high-pitched at that point in the film.
4: an excellent way
0: of putting it. The other thing, I think it happens directly after she's found out about the director's death. So you, she finds out about that death and then she kind of beats her fists on the wall, her assistant's there, as you say, and then she yes. turns around and suddenly she's coming down the stairs, so it's like you get pow-pow. You're not quite sure where, where, what you should be feeling, where you should be looking at the director's death and her grief for that or now... This thing that's happening on the staircase. What you were saying before about the superimposed demon faces, that almost seems to be a very anti-Freakin thing to do because, I mean, one thing they certainly all are is he, he loves ambiguity and, and there's a right. lot of restraint and discipline in his films and that sort of feels unrestrained and and a bit prescriptive, which is not not something I associate with Freakin's films generally. The
4: moment is in Blatty's novel, but there were a number of things that Freakin eliminated from laddie's novel anyway did you read the Freakin' connection i've read parts of it it is very well written it is an engaging book uh if you have any interest in films and in particular if you have any interest in him it's a terrific book to read
0: well i might get to it after i've finished reading the the ones i have from you on order oh thank you (laughs) (laughs) do you have any plans to to reissue um, the Friedkin book, and, and perhaps, um, you know, to, to update it, include films like Bug and Killer Joe. And I was wondering if you've, right. you've seen his later films and, and what you make of them.
4: I think it would be terrific to do another update, so we'll see how, you know, if there are any possibilities of that. As far as the films he's made, like, uh, you know, Killer Joe, they very much have his signature on them. They are also... I can't help but say it, there is an aberration in them. They are unexpected, and they are also upsetting, even. Billy would be the first one to say that he's making films that he wants to make and that he's very fortunate to be able to make those films he'll make the kinds of films that he wants to make tell the kinds of stories that he wants to make they're very visceral and that's what he does
0: are there are any contemporary filmmakers who interest you the way Friedkin does
4: there are filmmakers that I, I I love I love their movies you know good and bad I love their films I like the films that uh James Cameron makes. I think they're very entertaining. I liked the movies that Bob Fosse made. I thought they were terrific, like All That Jazz. Yes. And Star 80.
0: Star 80, I think, is such a disturbing film to watch.
4: I also think All That Jazz, like The Exorcist, is one of the best films ever made, along with, you know, Citizen Kane and Lawrence of Arabia and a few others.
0: I agree, uh, and there's nothing like it. No, right. Totally unique.
4: Totally, yes. Yeah. These are all films... Uh, including uh, The Exorcist and The French Connection that I can watch over and over and over again and I never get tired of watching them.
0: It's amazing the power that The Exorcist still has.
4: When the film came out, uh, one of the the most often used words to describe it was electrifying. It's not even really horror genre. It's something else. It's elevated above that, at least for me. A, a lot of people said the same thing about The Silence of the Lambs when it came out that it was if they decided to call it a horror film. And I thought, no, this is this is more than a horror film just like The Exorcist. There's there's much more going on here because they are horror, they are terrifying, but there is a sense of reality. To them that takes them beyond that
0: genre. I've just got one more question for you, Tom. I was wondering what you're working on these days. If we've got another another novel to look forward to.
4: Actually, I do. I believe it will be out either toward the end of next year or the top of 2018. It is called Line of Glory, and it's a novel about the Alamo. Oh, well, that'll be excellent. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Thank you. I trying to come up with a different kind of look at the battle. At this moment, I'd rather not give, give it away, if that's all right. Absolutely. But it will be, uh, it will be coming from five-star publishing, publishers of my uh, other two novels, And I'm very pleased and excited about this. I hope you will like it if you read it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm absolutely sure I will. Um, Thank you so, so much for giving us this time. It's been absolutely wonderful speaking with you. And congratulations on all of your recent success with the two books and and this third one coming out.
4: Well, this has been a real pleasure for me. Thank you (laughs) for your interest.
0: To find out more about Tom, please visit his website, www.thomasdclaggett.com. All of his books are available through the publisher or alternatively through Book Depository.
1: The ending is something I would change. In terms of what occurs or specifically the gunshot? The gunshot, especially, I would take out. Uh, uh, But I think it contradicts itself. You get this gunshot, so you assume someone's been shot. And then you get the text cards. It it gives no gravitas to that gunshot whatsoever. I mean, how fantastic would it have been if Gene Hackman had wandered off to look for him and then it went to black? No title card, just the end credits. I mean, this whole film is about a chase. And it never ends at the end of this movie. It would never end.
0: It feels like just a little um, kind of eccentric, excessive detail that probably didn't need to be there and probably in a more disciplined moment, Freakin would have just let it yeah.
2: dissolve away. I would love it. If they had the title cards and they just cut to black, I wouldn't care. But the fact that there's that gunshot, it just makes no sense. It really doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I think you've got to take out one of them. You've got to take out the gunshot or the title card.
0: Yeah, well, what's interesting about the ending is that it's very anti-Hollywood. And, you know, you can feel the influence of European cinema in in its cynicism. You know, obviously, Charnier, the main guy that we've been trying to see dispatched, Evades justice completely. The only one who does serve jail time, according to the film, is the Patsy, the uh, television film. He didn't really know what was going on. Oh, yeah. um, he had no idea
2: what was going on in real life either, did he?
0: Yeah. I mean, he knew without knowing. You know, he just didn't ask any questions. Yeah. And actually, in real life, the sentences were far more excessive, so it actually thinned them out. It took the victory away from the two lead characters a little bit. So, I mean, you know, you, you do get this very, very dark ending and it's also an ending that shows us that once again it's the mid-level guys that get killed while all the big top guys go back onto their yachts and keep on living which is pretty much how war is the the bullet aside because yeah i agree with you i think that it could have done without it
2: i think it also takes away from uh popeye walking away from the agent that is just killed as well that's a pretty significant moment. He kills somebody and you go, fuck, I can't believe he's done that. You can't, you forget about the murder he's just committed.
0: Yeah. Throughout the whole film, we've been totally in Doyle's corner, even though he's done some questionable things. Yeah. But that moment makes us fully confront him in his naked awfulness because he's just completely unfazed by the fact that he's killed an FBI agent and, and is keeps going, keeps going for the prize.
1: Which obviously that was not based on anything that happened in real life either.
0: Egan only fired, like, two bullets in his entire career and never killed anybody.
3: French Connection 2, the only film that could follow the French Connection. When Gene Hackman created the character of Detective Popeye Doyle in the French Connection, his performance won the Academy Award for Best Actor. Now, 20th Century Fox presents... Gene Hackman in a new look at the legend of Popeye Doyle.
0: I don't know if either of you saw French Connection 2?
2: I haven't. I wanted to. I didn't get a chance. No.
1: I was disappointed that it was um, completely fictionalised.
0: Yeah. Even though Robin Moore who wrote the original French Connection published his book The Setup which was a follow-on the same year in 1975.
1: So there was a follow-on to the real case that's seen in the French Connection.
0: Yeah. Because all 50 kilograms of heroin or whatever it was in real life was actually stolen out of police evidence rooms and sold back onto the street. It all ended up back onto the street.
1: Right. That would now that's an interesting movie
0: but I mean look the sequel isn't bad at all it, um, it came out four years after the first film it's directed by John Frankenheimer Uh, who was one of Freakin's idols. He did Manchurian Candidate. In the film, he's sent by the NYPD to Marseille to work with the French authorities to track down Charnier, who he's still obsessed with and who's still living there and trafficking drugs. He develops a strained relationship with the lead inspector of the French department who keeps trying to push him out of the case. And Charnier, about halfway through the film, discovers that Popeye is there. And then it sort of becomes less a procedural movie and more like a battle of wits between these two adversaries. And, and I guess the most interesting part of the movie is that Charnier, um, when he kidnaps Popeye at one point in the film, he puts him in a room and then slowly gets him addicted to heroin over the course of like two or three weeks and then dumps him with the police, just throws him out of a car, this disheveled man who's a heroin addict. And this sort of harks back to what you were saying earlier, Cameron, about how we didn't have a face on addicts. So in The French Connection to the worst thing that Charnier can do to Hackman is turn him into one of those addicts. Sounds a fair bit nastier. It's not. Um, I think probably the editing and everything in this film is, this film, you know, is very, very exciting and wonderful. And and, and French Connection 2 feels a little more like every other movie. It didn't have anything in it that was as spectacular as a few of the scenes in French Connection, but definitely worth seeing.
1: And the only two who returned were Gene Hackman and Fernando Ray, who played...
0: All right, let's just um, talk a little bit about the Blu-ray controversy that uh, happened a few years ago when French Connection was released. So, Freakin supervised the transfer. In 2009. And he made some dramatic changes, particularly to the colour timing and overall look of the film. Sometime after that, Owen Roisman, the cinematographer, was being interviewed on Back by Midnight, and he said that he was, to use his word, appalled by the transfer. Friedkin then appeared on the show, uh, saying that Roisman happened to be wrong, that he was the filmmaker of the film, that this is the best it's ever looked. What's happened subsequently, a new Blu-ray version's been released as part of the Signature Series collection, and this one was supervised by both Roisman and Friedkin, and it got a much better reception by the public. Than that first release.
1: Because Roysman did the cinematography on The Exorcist as well. D- he said that Roysman wouldn't be included on the restoration of The Exorcist for Blu-ray. And was he? Uh, yes, I believe he was. And obviously he was invited back for the version of The French
0: Connection, which is available now. Well, I ended up watching both Freakin's version and the Signature Series version. Yeah. And look, the free conversion, essentially what it is, the colors been bled quite a bit out of the image, and it's very grainy. You still get reasonable definition. It's not a disaster. I heard
2: that he just pushed a lot of things to blue.
0: Well, maybe there was, but I I didn't notice anything that stood out really, really badly. There were mild fluctuations.
1: But definitely the warm colours were less in the... the, There's some comparative screenshots on Blu-ray.com. So... Uh you can see the differences there and the, the comparative the differences are the the warm colours are bled out a little bit more in Friedkin's version from two thousand and nine.
0: It almost looks like a grindhouse, like an old VHS thing. Yeah. The image is still quite good, but it looks very, very vintage.
1: It's reasonably grainy even in the yeah. version that's available from Friedkin and Roysman.
0: I mean, yeah, look, I I didn't think it was terrible. I would rather have the signature series uh version, that would be yeah. the one I'd recommend. Okay, so uh, we want to give away a Blu-ray copy of The French Connection to one of our fabulous listeners. Uh, What we'd like you to do, because the tagline for this film is pretty lackluster the tagline is the time is just right for an out and out thriller like this there are five alternate listed according to imdb but none of them are very good we want to challenge you to come up with a better tagline so leave the tagline in the comment section on facebook or uh, on our website and we'll get in touch with the winner and post them out a copy of of that (laughs) blu-ray
1: So uh, critics love The French Connection and, and as Luke mentioned, it was nominated for eight Academy Awards and won five of them, including the big ones, Best Picture, Director, Actor and Screenplay. It also won three of the four Golden Globes it was up for, again including Picture, Director and Actor. So the impact of the film was really immediate. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune said that there's only one problem with the excitement generated by this film. After it's over, you'll walk out of the cinema and, as I did, curse the tedium of your own life. Roger Frederick of Variety lauded the work of Roysman as cinematographer and the tour editing by Jerry Greenberg, but noted that the killing of the FBI agent in the film's climax is meaningless. Roger Greenspun reviewed the film for the New York Times and loved it, saying the French Connection is a film of almost incredible suspense and it includes, among a great many chilling delights, the most brilliantly executed chase sequence I have ever seen. He also agreed about the FBI agent, so there were a, there were a couple of reviews out there that didn't really love that, but yeah, it got really positive reviews. It was made on a budget of 1.8 million dollars, and it grossed 51.7 million, which today is equivalent to about 307 million dollars. So a huge success. The sequel was made four years later. It cost 4.3 million dollars and grossed 12.5, million, which is equivalent to about 57 million dollars today. And I. Maybe I assume that's why there was never a French connection three, but it did receive pretty positive
2: reviews.
0: All right guys, quiz time who's feeling lucky today?
2: well let's just rehash how much I floored Damien last episode.
0: It was an amazing victory. Thank you. It was like four to one. all right Damien we'll start with you, yeah okay. the real life Doyle Eddie Egan played a role in the film. What was his character's name? Egan. <laughs> Cameron, do you know?
2: I don't know. I know he was the police captain, but I don't know his name.
0: The name was Simonson. Walt Simonson. Uh. Cameron, in real life, all of the heroin seized from the 1961 bust was pilfered from the police evidence storage room and sold on the streets by narcotic officers in collaboration with US drug agents. This corruption formed the basis for Robin Moore's 1975 follow-up to the French Connection, which was called what? You just said it. Oh, I know. Aren't you going to kick yourself? It was like...
2: Fuck's sake. It's the... Starts with S, doesn't
0: it? The setup.
2: That's what I was going to say.
0: Damien, Owen Roysman was the cinematographer on a pretty famous concert film for a well known singer entertainer. Who was it? And you should know this. Um, he shot Liza Minnelli's Liza with a Z. He did. Woo! That was a total guess, wasn't it?
1: <laughs> uh, no, it was uh, Liza with a Z came out in 1972. So we would have been in between The French Connection and
2: The Exorcist. Do
1: I get a tailored
0: question? You do, actually, the next one. But I'll just say quickly, Liza Minnelli also presented Gene Hackman with the Oscar this year for French Connection, and she is very Liza. Yes. Very offbeat, weird.
1: Completely
0: fucking crazy.
3: The five gentlemen tonight, who are nominated for the best performance by an actor, have earned that honour by following all the rules... That all the great actors of all times have tried to do, and tonight is just another splendid night. Can you have the envelope? Are you guys as nervous as I am? <laughs> and the
1: winner is. the winner is Mr. Gene Hackman.
0: <laughs> Cameron, what was the first of five films editor Gerald B. Greenberg worked on for De Palma? Sisters. Dressed to kill. True or false, Damien. Hackman wearing the Santa suit at the beginning of the film is based on a real undercover tactic that Egan used to spy on suspects. True. Yes. Alright, so we've got two for Damien, zero for Cameron. Cameron, true or false. Four one, right. The original CEO of clothing retailer French Connection named the company after his favourite film. False. True.
2: Fuck off.
0: Yeah, the company was founded in 1972 by Stephen Marks and he loved the movie. Alright, well that was 2-0, Damien. You are the winner. Woo-hoo! All right, guys, so French Connection out of five. Five. Oh, really? Me too. Damien?
2: Four and a half. Ooh. Gunshot. <laughs> I was talking to someone about it today, and I was like, because I'd watched it recently on Letterboxd, and when I went to rate it today, I'd put four and a half previously. And I was like, there's nothing I would change. And then I just thought about the gunshot, but I'm going to stick with five.
0: You can't knock at half a point for a gunshot.
2: No, I, I
1: do knock off half a point for the ending apart from that I think it's a fantastic film four and a half out of five shouldn't be sneezed at it's like that's a great rating I won't sneeze at it don't sneeze at
0: it it's coming from the person who gave Hellraiser five stars
1: it's called Hellraiser
0: not Hellraiser well it doesn't matter Damien alright well look we'll take four and a half Damien okay Thank you, everybody, for joining us for another episode of Celluloid Junkies. We've enjoyed having you. Please join us again next month for a profile of Darren Aronofsky's 2008 drama, The Wrestler. Until then, we wish you all a safe holiday with a couple of drinks and some bad Christmas movies shared with friends and family.
2: Happy New Year. Merry Christmas, you filthy animals.